0: minor prophets some other books included in that would be joel amos obadiah and jonah Uh, there are also five books in the old testament that we refer to as the major prophets they would include isaiah jeremiah limitations ezekiel and daniel Uh, when we use the two terms major and minor prophets we're not using them uh, to indicate that the minor prophets are somehow less significant or less important than the major prophets we just use those terminologies to help us to distinguish between the sizes of those books. In other words, the minor prophets are just smaller works of literature than the major prophets, but certainly no less significant. And that's certainly true for the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is one of the, one of the oldest prophetic books uh, in the Old Testament. In fact, we would we would probably know very little about the prophet uh, Hosea that we're going to learn about through this study if it had not been for the book. He's just not mentioned outside of the book itself. Uh, if, if you know anything about Hosea, what you probably know him for is this peculiar marriage that he has with a woman by the name of Gomer. That's right. Gomer, every woman's least favorite name, right? Is Sorry, all the Gomers that are out there. Uh, some of you, as soon as you hear Gomer, you think Gomer Pyle, and that means you're old, that you would remember that. Uh, and everything you're thinking Gomer Pyle from the hit... You know, anyway, the, the, if you've never seen it, if you're too young, uh, Google it, and once you watch it, you will rise up and call me blessed for having seen it after this. So, uh, Gomer is uh, just the name Gomer itself, being a wife, is enough to really spark her interest in this couple. I, I love as a pastor uh, meeting new couples uh, when they come and visit the church, and uh, I love them. Sometimes you look at them and you're like, man, they are just a perfect match. They just seem to have everything in common. They seem to share a similar background. Some have, have some of the same interests, have some of the same uh, passions and goals in life. Sometimes they even kind of look alike, right? Uh, you're like, so you're not brother and sister? your husband husband and wife. Yes, okay, that's great. And then there are some couples that you meet, and then you just kind of sit and think, huh, what happened here you know like how did uh, these people have absolutely nothing in common at all which makes you begin to think how in the world did this happen how in the world did these two diversely different people come together and how in the world is it working right that's what you're thinking and but what's interesting if you stop and think about it some of our favorite disney stories are about uh, couples that are diverse radically different than each other we think of cinderella Here's this poor, impoverished servant girl that marries the handsome, rich prince. Uh, we've got uh, the, the story of um, uh, Pocahontas, where you have the American Indian girl marrying the Englishman John Smith. And then, of course, one of the clearest illustrations of this is beauty and the beast, right? You've got a uh, beautiful Belle over here. and Then you've got, well, the beast. And sometimes I sit back and think, what was this conversation like with the family? You know, somebody go, hey, have you seen Belle's new bow? Well, what, no, I haven't seen him yet. Well, he's a dog. And she, they're, they're basically like, oh, really, he's a dog? And you're like, no, literally, he's a dog, like rough, rough, he's a dog. And somehow at the end, as, as different as they are, it all seems to be able to work out in the end. And, and, and that's a little bit like this couple that we're reading about this morning, Hosea and Gomer. They are radically different with, from one another. And yet, we could probably very well biblically say this is a match made in heaven, And the reason we say it's a match made in heaven is not because they have so much in common, but rather is because God divinely and sovereignly brought these two together in a marriage covenant with one another. This was a design of God. Now, we're going to be looking at that marriage this morning, and this is the way really the story begins, and it's going to be important as we move forward to understand it. Uh, But what I want you to understand is that the book is really not about a relationship between Hosea and Gomer at all. Rather, it's about a relationship between God and his people. Uh, more so, it's about how in the world, or what it looks like for a God like him to be in a relationship with people like us. And so what we want to do is there's, there's really two themes that we want to be aware of as we're working through the book, and they're apparent in almost every chapter. Uh, in each and every chapter that we see, we're going to uh, see God's judgment, and then we're going to see hope judgment and hope, and what we're going to see is those things constantly being tied together by God's love, by this incredible love that God has that just keeps coming. It just keeps coming after us. It just keeps seeking after us. As far and as hard as God's people might, might run from God he's, he, and be unfaithful to God, he's always faithfully pursuing us, seeking us, doing all he can to bring us back to him and a right relationship with him. And that's what we see unfold in this book. And we'll see it for the weeks and months to come. But now what I wanna do is I just wanna use chapter one really as an introduction to the book. So this isn't like a normal sermon that I would preach per se, Uh, But we want to use it because we want to understand these characters, understand the setting, understand why it's being written so that we can better understand what's going on as we begin to unpack chapter by chapter. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I just want to look at three things as a point of introduction. We want to look at a sinful people, a sinful people. We want to look at a severe or a stern judgment, a stern judgment. And then finally, we want to finish with a sliver of... Of hope. So let's take a look first of all at the sinful people. We begin with verse one. The Bible says, "And the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel." So right off the bat in verse one, uh, the author is letting us know when this took place. and it took place during what was known as the second Golden age of Israel. The first golden age would have taken place during the reigns of David and Solomon. Uh, They experienced the nation experienced unprecedented peace and prosperity and and, and expansion of lands during that time. And and we know though that it didn't last very long. And the reason for that was primarily because of uh, of Solomon's propensity to marry women that were pagan. So he had an eye for pagan women. He would marry them. And in doing so, he would take on the idol worship that they took part in. And then he would actually bring the rest of the nation into that same idolic worship. Uh, Worship of those same idols. And so, obviously, we know that the nation can't stand. You would hope that once Solomon died, that, that practice of idol worship would have died with him. But we find that's not the case. In fact, when his son comes on the scene, this idol worship explodes and takes off to the point that it literally divides the nation in two. And what we find is this, this division in about 930 B.C., about a thousand years before Christ, the whole nation of Israel splits off into ten tribes in the north, which comes to be known as the kingdom of Israel. And then we also have the, the, the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah, and that's made up of two tribes. Well, once they divide in 930 B.C., 200 years go by, and the northern kingdom this whole time has been doing nothing but worshiping false Gods. So God brings Hosea on the scene at this particular point to address this this uh, uh, idol problem that the people are having. And, and when he comes, he comes again in this second in the second golden age. And the reason it's called that is because, once again, the people are experiencing this incredible peace and prosperity and even expansion of land, unlike any other time that they have seen in their history except for back at the first golden age with David and with Solomon. And so what's happening is he, he comes at this time. Everything looks good politically and financially. Everybody feels like it, things could not be any better. But as you know as well as I do, those things can be going well, but spiritually things were not going well for the people at all. They thought things were great with God, but little did they know things were not great at all. You know, you would think, at least this is the way I think, you would think if, if everything was going well in our lives... You would think that if our kids were obeying and our lo- and our wife would, would, would love us the way that we want to be loved and our husband would love us the way we want them to love and, and, and there was money in the bank account and the house was paid off and the dog was sweet and would actually fetch the ball that you throw, mine does not. But if all these things were ultimately to be able to come together, then those would be the times that we would be the most exuberant in our faith for God, that would be so thankful and so grateful to God. But you know what? The opposite is often true, is it not? When things seem to be going actually so well, even though we plead out, God, fix this, give me this, give me whatever it is, when we actually get those things, oftentimes God's people find themselves falling into spiritual apathy in complacency and even infidelity by worshiping false gods rather than the one true God. And you would think that this would be the case, but this is exactly what happens with the people in the Northern Kingdom. And I believe it happens for two reasons. I think number one is because when God does bless us and he is good to us, as he always is, and we begin to take some of those things that he's given us, there's a tendency for us to begin to desire and to love and to worship the gift rather than the giver. And I think the second problem that we have is oftentimes when things are going well, we we, we kind of fall into this false sense of security, thinking to ourselves that everything between us and, and God is right, When in fact, in reality, things are not right with him at all, even though everything seems to be going well. These were the two mistakes that these sinful people of the northern kingdom were guilty of making. Now look at verse 2. We see the sinful people, but now we're going to see kind of this, the nature of Hosea's ministry to those sinful people. Look at verse 2. He says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom.'" And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, uh, we live kind of in a spiritual culture in Christianity today, where it seems like there's almost this resurgence of self-proclaimed prophets, where people are want to be viewed as a prophet. They want people to believe that they have a special word from uh, God. And whenever somebody comes boasting of being a prophet, I often wonder if they've actually ever personally read about the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Yes, it's true that the Old Testament prophets had places of prominence where they were speaking on behalf of God. They would speak the very word of God. It was cool because oftentimes they would speak about future events that would occur uh, in the future. All that cool. Uh, The problem is they spoke a lot, but almost nobody ever listened to them. Have you ever noticed that? They come on the scene. You go, I want to preach to your people. Oh, yeah, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. So they get up and they preach and they preach and they preach. And it's not only that they don't listen, they really don't like the prophets. You understand this, right? I mean, there are people who show up only when everybody's doing bad. And what do they do? They point out what everybody else is doing bad. That that doesn't bother you? Uh, This very last week, I had one of our staff members. They're closing on their house and they have to do a walkthrough. And they asked me, they said, hey, Mike, we were looking for somebody that might be able to come in and walk through and to be able to kind of recognize and point out all the things that are wrong. And we thought of you. What does that mean? (laughs) I guess it means I'm a prophet. So, and, and because nobody listens. And so, so, so the idea is, is the prophet comes on the scene, tells everybody that they're doing wrong. And then they follow it up with this warning saying, and if you don't repent and get right, really horrible things are going to happen to you. Nobody likes that guy. And so they had a hard way about things, but God also called them not only to preach hard things, but to do hard things. He would often tell them to do the strangest things in the Old Testament. Again, like, like for example, when, when we think of one of the prophets, Jeremiah, he tells them, I want you to preach, but I want you to preach with a big wooden oak around, uh, around your shoulders. That would be incredibly uncomfortable. He tells Ezekiel, hey, I want you to run around like a little kid, acting as though you're playing war games to be able to convey a truth to the people. Uh, then poor Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 20, go and read it. He says, I want you to preach for the people for three years, but I want you to do it by stripping off your shoes and stripping off your clothes. I want you to be the naked prophet. Anybody else want to be a prophet, right? And so he, they call him to do these, d- preach difficult things, do difficult things, and Probably no prophet was ever commanded to do anything more difficult than Hosea himself. Because here he calls Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom. Now, let me let me suggest that word whoredom in adultery or pretty much mean basically the same thing. Uh, but it takes a long time in studying the text to realize that that, that people kind of disagree on what exactly is meant by this. In other words, some historians basically believe that this wasn't actually literal, that this was an allegory or a parable. That is, that Hosea tells a story, and it's just a made-up story, like a heavenly story with an, or an earthly meeting with a heavenly story to ca- try to convey it. Still, others have suggested it's more than that, that it was actually a vision that Hosea had, and this vision was so real that it felt real to him. You know those dreams where you wake up, and, and you, the, the type that you've kind of wore your underwear you know, to school, and you wake up and you feel like it was real? No, none of you know that. Okay, so uh, just me. Uh, and so it's just a, it's, it's one of those that feels real. And then others would come across and say, no, it was more than a vision. This was actually a historical event that actually took place. And so what they say is those that agree that it was a historical fact, they even disagree a little bit. So someone would say what he actually did was God commanded him to marry a, uh, uh, um, a, a prostitute. She was a prostitute. He was to marry them and remain married to her. Others would say, no, God would never do that. Instead, she was pure when they got married, but then uh, she ended up entering into prostitution afterwards. I'm not sure one's better than the other, to be honest with you. Uh, Others would suggest that she's not a prostitute at all. She's just an adulterous woman. She's just marrying, he was commanded to marry this woman that he knew that was ultimately going to commit adultery on him. So the question is, what, which are of these are true? The answer is, I don't know which one they are, but it doesn't change the fact and the point of the story that God is commanding his man, this godly man, to, to, to marry a woman that he knows without a shadow of a doubt for the rest of the years of their marriage is going to commit adultery on him. She's going to constantly seek to be with other men in a very real physical way. And he says, go marry them. Here's what I know. I know that almost every young man and woman thinks of what kind of person they're going to marry. And whether you have like a physical list or not, I guarantee on nobody's list is I hope that I marry somebody who is unfaithful to me. Nobody does that. That's not on anyone's list. Yet this is the very woman that God commands him to marry. Why is that? Because the relationship between Hosea and Gomer is supposed to illustrate something. It's supposed to be something that is on display. It's supposed to illustrate the relationship between God and his people. Hosea represents God, the faithful husband, loving, caring, and merciful. Gomer would represent God's people, sinful, ungrateful, and perpetually unfaithful. That's why he has them marry them. Go into, take this woman. Why? Because it is going to demonstrate and show this picture of what it's like for me to be in the relationship of the people of Israel who who are forever unfaithful to me. That's the sinful people that he's called to minister to. But he's also come to give a stern judgment. So in the beginning, here's what he does. The first command is marry a wife of whoredom. And then he comes and he says, We are to raise children of whoredom, And this is precisely what he does. So we've met the sweet wife. And now let's meet the sweet children, shall we? And so look at verse 3 we pick up. He says, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame. And she conceived and she bore him a son. And the Lord said to, him, said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow, the bow of, of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So he goes, look, he goes, I want you to have this son, and it's important to know that this was actually Hosea's son. So so they consummated the marriage, he has a child, and then God says, I'm going to name him for you, name is Jezreel, which literally means God scatters. Now that's significant for two reasons. Number one is there's a play on words that are going on here. If you notice, even in the English, Jezreel and Israel sound very much alike. Well, in the Hebrew, they're almost identical. And so there's a little bit of play on words when when, 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 when when God tells him, hey, name him Jezreel. There would have been a part of Hosea that would have said, oh, name him Israel, which basically means that God cares for, God tends to. And he says, no, 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 no. I mean Jezreel, God scatters. And the reason that he does that is because God's intention is not to bless the people. God's intention at this point is to curse the people, to judge the people. And so he's going to scatter them and it's precisely what happens in 722 B.C. In 722 BC, there's an army known as the Assyrians who are going to come down at this particular point. They're going to defeat the northern kingdom and then they are going to literally scatter the people throughout all the other nations. And see, what they would do is they wouldn't, they wouldn't destroy their enemy. They would sow their enemy into other cultures in such a way that they would lose their identity as the children of God as they begin to intermarry and begin to take on the other gods. So this is their way to be able to take, go, take care of their enemies. And God is, is warning them that this judgment is going to come. God is soon going to scatter the people. But he does it for a second reason. And that's not just because of what Jezreel means. It's also because of what it stands for. Jezreel was actually a physical place. It was called the, the, the Valley of Jezreel. In 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, we read a story about Ahab and his sweet wife Jezebel. Do you remember that couple? Another sweet, wonderful couple. And, and Ahab just so happens that he likes this, this, um, this um, a vineyard of a man by the name of Naboth. And he basically says, hey, I'd really like to switch Uh, vineyards with you I really like the way yours looks I like the way that it kind of whatever would you like to switch he goes no I don't want to switch and he goes well can I buy it from you and he says no I'm not going to buy it from you he begins to pout he goes down he goes back to his his ungodly wife Jezebel and he goes he won't give me my vineyard that I want and she says well then kill him just kill him and take it and it's precisely what he does Elijah hears about this he comes on the scene and he and he and he he calls a, a a curse on his family on their family and he tells him, he says, look, you're going to die because of what you do. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, he, he ends up, Ahab dies. Um, we, we, you hear the wonderful story about sweet Jezebel. She's so sweet that after she dies, the dogs come and eat her body, but they leave her head and her hands and her feet because they're too nasty to touch. All right, that's basically the point of the story. Great, I have to preach that one. That's a good one, right? And so, <clears throat> so, so here's what happens. And so, so all of this stuff ends up happening. And then eventually a man is raised up and he's the one that actually puts him to death. His name is Jehu and he becomes a king and he actually puts Ahab and Jezebel to death. But then he goes one step too far. He actually wipes out the entire line of Ahab, kills them all, slaughters them all. Guess where? In the valley of Jezreel. So Naboth... He was slain there. His blood was slain there. All of the family of Ahab, his family is slain there. And so even though the word itself, Jezreel, means to be scattered, it became to be known synonymously with the word bloodshed. So what he does is God comes on this particular scene, and he basically tells them, hey, guess what? You are going to be scattered in, in this judgment. There is going to be massive, massive bloodshed in my judgment of you and so this word again it's it's synonymous with something that really really bad happened it would be very similar to you and i naming our children auschwitz or hiroshima or nagasaki nobody's going to do that because all they would do people would not always be able to associate that name with something else and that's what these children were to do is to always be associated with the judgment of god that was going to come So here's the first child that they have, but they have a second child. And this is important to know that this is not actually physically Hosea's child. This child is most likely a child from one of the adulterous relationships that his wife has with another man. And so another child is born. We pick up here in verse 6. It says, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all so this second child is named no mercy literally it means not loved so you could very well translate it hey this is my daughter not loved not very loving at all is it you know it's hard to be able to pick children's names do you you think that as well it's just it's just hard especially the more you have the more difficult it becomes uh you know to be able to name them and uh and so i remember receiving a book that had twenty thousand names in it to try to help me didn't help me at all i like read through the whole thing go you got any more you know, I'm not happy with any of these things. And so what it does is it calls people sometimes to name their children difficult things. And even my own kids, sometimes I can't even call them what I named them. The, the, the na- the, their names get confused inside of my brain. Uh, but sometimes people do very awkward things and names their, their kids awkward things. Like, for example, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, their first daughter, daughters was named Northwest. Oh, <laughs> how, how sweet singer David Bowie named his poor daughter, poor daughter, Zoe Bowie. That's the name that he came up with. Must be all that money that goes to your head. And then the musician Bob Geldof and his wife named their three children Fifi Trixabel, Peaches Honey Blossom, and Little Pixie. That's child abuse. I mean, that's just not even... That's not nice at all. And and, and as bad and as strange as all of that is, the whole point of God being able to name them not only bloodshed but also uh, no mercy was to be able to demonstrate the severe judgment of God that was impending, that was coming upon the people. Now, you'll be pleased to know that there is a third child and I know we're all anxious to know what the name of this one is. So look at, look at verse 8. He says, when she had weaned no mercy, which means the child would have been between three and four years old, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. How confusing and how uncomfortable it must have been to be introduced to this family, right? Guy shows up. What's your name? Hosea. What's your wife's name? Well, this is Gomer. Gomer. Yes, Gomer. Uh, And she's a prostitute. And uh, and then we have our lovely children over here I would love to introduce you with. Uh, This is our our name, Jezreel, that's right, um, bloodshed. I know that comes to your name. But we really just like to think of him as, you know, God scatters, you know, in judgment. And then we have our middle daughter, which really isn't my daughter at all. Uh, My little daughter, no mercy, she's not loved. And then we have um, this final daughter that, uh, again, not my child. And we actually decided to name them not my people. (laughs) So this is my family, isn't this wonderful? So, when you actually think that this is not a made up story, but this is actually something that actually happened, that they're literally, he's literally living with this woman who is perpetually unfaithful, and he's going around, and every time he's calling the name of these children, he's reminding the people of the impending judgment of God that was to come. Now, why would he ultimately do that? Why not just tell them? Here's why you can tell people things over and over and over again, it doesn't mean that they're gonna get it, right? I mean, if you have a child, you understand this. Look, look, you have children, and you know this. Your first couple kids, they seem to be just like perfect, right? And, and, and God just sucks you in just enough to think they're always going to be perfect. And then you have one, right? That's not so perfect. That does things a little bit different. I will not name which one is not the perfect one. I will not uh, who that is. But anyway, but, but what will happen is it's kind of like when you have kids where, where one of them all of a sudden decides that they're going to break all the other kids' toys, You know, they play with it and then they break it. And then you turn around and you're like, what are you doing? Why are you breaking their, uh, stop doing that. That's not a good thing to be able to do. You're not supposed to break that. You wouldn't want that to happen to you, would you? And you keep telling them, quit breaking other people's toys. Quit playing with the toys. And finally, you absolutely have it. And what do you do? You grab their toy, you break it and you throw it into the trash. Now, I wouldn't do that. You would do that. But, 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 but what happens at that particular point? For the very first time after hearing this is wrong, this is not right, this is, this is an evil thing to do, for the very first time they recognize how, how dangerous and how awful their act is because they themselves actually feel the pain. This is precisely what God is doing. Is I've been telling you that you've been going after false gods. You've been, you've been worshiping other gods. Your heart is not for me. It's for a bunch of idols. And he says, and I've been telling you over and over again, all I know, all I know to do now is put it on display for you to see. Hopefully to be able to wake you out of your apathy wake you out of, uh, of you just going through this life thinking that everything is okay when everything with me is not okay. He's trying to wake the people up. So we see a sinful people. We see a stern judgment. And I think we need to end at least with this, with a, a sliver of hope. Because right now you said, well, there was two primary themes you said in the introduction. Uh, one is going to be judgment. The other is going to be hope. Uh, give us a little bit of hope before we leave. And the author does. He lets us know that this whole book is not going to be doom and gloom, but there is going to be hope for God's people. And so here's basically what he does. He, he tells us that he's going to, remember, he's going to come and judge them. He, he's no longer going to love them, no longer going to show them mercy. He, he, they're no longer going to be his people. He's no longer going to be their God. And when you and I read that, some of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you're trying to figure out what do we do with this on top of God's original promise to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, when he gave this unconditional covenant with his people, is he now going back on that? Is that what he's doing? What, 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 do we, what, what do we do in the midst of that? Is he now going back? Are they not going to be the people that he said that he would be? Remember what some of the blessings. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations that bless you. He goes, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a great people. How is he going to do all that if at this moment in history he he takes them and he basically uh, 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 takes them and spreads them all through all these other nations so that they lose their very identity? How is it going to happen? Very simply this way, because even though judgment will fall on some, it will not fall on all. See, within the midst of this that you don't see, at least not yet, there is a faithful remnant of people in that northern kingdom, in in that southern kingdom. And what God is saying is, even though God is going to judge those who claim to be God's people and they're not his people, in the midst of them, there are truly God's people in the midst of them. And I will remain faithful to them by one day bringing them back to Israel and using them to establish my original promise to Abraham. Here's how he says it in verse 10. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Do you see that? I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to scatter them. Wait a minute. They're still going to number of the children of, uh, of Israel shall be the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place which is, which it was said to them, you are not my people. I shall be said, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Do you see that? See, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the northern tribe is going to be scattered in 722. About 130 years later, the, 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 um, Judah is going to be scattered as well. They're actually going to be taken into captivity into Babylon, which means who's left in Jerusalem? And what God's going to do is, after that captivity, He is going to be faithful to be able to bring them back into the land. And then He says, under what? Under the one person, He says, and they shall be appointed for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land for God shall be it shall be the day of Jezreel. So let me explain this. Here's a prophecy. So the people he keeps warning them. Why is he warning them? Because he hates them? Because he loves them. He's telling them there's still time to repent from your sin. The warning about hell and about God's judgment is not because you hate people. It's a loving judgment, letting people know that there is a true, real, authentic judgment to come. Unless you turn, you're going to experience that. So even now when the people are guilty, he's still trying to warn them. still trying to call them to repentance as an act of love. And so he tells them this is what's going to happen. And now the question is, when was that ultimately fulfilled? That's the big question amongst uh, Bible scholars. Some suggest that it would happen shortly after this period. After the northern kingdom is taken away by the Assyrians. After after the southern kingdom of Judah, about 130 years later, is going to be taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. They are going to come back under one head. It's going to be a man by the name of Ezra. And he's going to come back, and remnants from both the northern and southern kingdom are going to come back to Israel again, and they're going to be dwelling in that land. And God says, I'm going to use that remnant to be able to fulfill the promise that I once made for you. So some scholars see that as the fulfillment. Others view something far more eschatological. Thanks for hanging with me, uh, even with the big word. And so what we mean by that is, is that something that's going to happen later, you read it in the book of Revelation. What some would ultimately suggest that, that, that the prophet was referring to an end-time event concerning the nation of Israel who will come under the kingship of Jesus Christ, the rightful king, in a future, future millennial kingdom. Okay, So that's kind of what we read about in the Old Testament. But there might be a better, clearer explanation and interpretation of this particular prophecy. And it's given to us. The best way to interpret prophecy is with Scripture itself. And when we look to the New Testament, we actually see two of the apostles, both Peter and Paul, and they actually quote the same verse and they interpret it for us, that fulfillment. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to the words of Hosea. Who once were not a people but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Then Paul interprets it as well by quoting the same exact In Romans chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, he says, even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, he says, and he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and be beloved who were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them that you are not my people, that they shall be called the sons of the living God. What was Paul, how did Paul and, uh, and Peter view the fulfillment of this? With the coming of Jesus. Christ. When Jesus Christ came, he said, this is what is going to unite the people once again under one head, the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the judgment of God was going to be poured out at another place of blood. It was called Golgotha, another Jezreel, which is going to be the place where the judgment of God would not fall on the people, but would fall on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the fulfillment in this. That's the ultimate promise. Was there immediate? Yes. Was there a future? But there was an ultimate in the person of Jesus Christ. That you will not pay for the judgment of me. That Jesus Christ will pay the judgment. The head will pay the judgment for you. So this is where we are. Now, what do we do with this? Well, if you figure it out, let me know this week so I can explain what the point of this book is later, right? That would be very helpful to me. But let me me explain something very quickly. When we go through a book like this, and and, and look, you can preach biblical messages that are not through a book. Let me make sure that's clear. But I love being able to work through books like this with the whole body. And that's why I always encourage you, try to be here if you can. If you can't, listen to it like uh, on the app store. Listen to all that. Just try to follow along with us. Why? Because we want to grow together. As God speaks through the word of God, when we get it right and he's speaking to us. We want to grow individually, but we want to take this journey as a body of Christ as well. Isn't there something unique about that and beautiful? And that's what we want to do. And with each book, think about it with the book of Galatians. Here's what happened with our book of Galatians. The whole theme behind that is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And we begin to work through it, and there's two things that happen. There were some people who finally understood what it meant to trust in God fully and not their own works. Some people came to faith in Jesus Christ through that sermon series because it took week after week for them to be confronted that, hey, bro, you're not good enough. Ma'am, you're not good enough. But you're depending not only on what Christ did, but you're depending on what you did as well. And that's not salvation at all. That's not the gospel at all. And some people, that finally clicked to them and they came to faith. Then there were other believers who came up afterwards and said, Hey, bro, I know that I am born again. I know that I've placed my faith completely in the completed work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. But I find myself living in enslavement of the same works-based salvation again. I just find myself waking up and determining whether I have a good day or a bad day or whether God's accepted me or not accepted me based on how good I obey the law. And I was set free from that through this teaching knowing that it's not anything I've done, it's all what he's done. So when we get to a book like this, the question is, how do we use a book like this? Well, in a very similar way. So say we have 700 plus people here on Sunday morning, between the two services and whatnot. I want you to be very aware that not everybody here is a true, genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And what you need to be aware of is they don't even know it. They don't even know it. They're very much like the people then, who were very very spiritual, did a lot of spiritual acts, were very religious in many ways, as we'll see unpacked, and they think everything is right with God because everything seems to be going hunky-dory, but the truth of the matter is they are not his people. And the reason they are not his people is because the truth is they're here not even for God. They're here for what God can get them. This is what these people are going to do. They're going to mix idolatry with the true religion of God and they're going to mix it together for one reason only, for God to give them the things that are idolatrous desires of their hearts. And for some of you here, that's why you came. If I offered nothing but Christ itself, he would say, No thanks, there's something else that I want. And you would say, what I'm hoping is I'll live my life in such a way that God will give me the idols of my heart, a good marriage, a good family, a good job, a good retirement. Those are the things that I really want. That is not salvation. And then there are those that will, will, through this, when they begin to see what they've done and come under the conviction of Jesus Christ... Then they're going to see this unrelenting love of God who's loved them every step, even in the midst of all of their idolatry and they're going to call out in in faith to Christ, they'll be saved. Then there are a bunch of us, bunch of us, including your pastor, who who many times uh, has kind of walked through and, and I look at ministry and I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing there for the most part, not perfectly. I feel like, I, you know, the home, I'm trying to be the dad I'm supposed to be and the husband I'm supposed to be and financially trying to be faithful in all of that. And yet, in, in, in the midst of all of that, there, there sometimes is a sense of something's missing. And it's so hard to put my finger on what that is. There's just a bit of, a, of an emptiness. And a book like this draws my attention to the fact is that the problem that's going on, Mike, is that your attention is drawn so much to these things which you had a good intention to begin with, but now your affection is greater for these things than they are for me. So the things you were supposed to be faithful for, now you've taken in that they are actually your gods and you've left me behind and I'm yearning for you. You're committing spiritual adultery in these different areas of your life, and I'm doing all I can to call you back to myself, to call you back once again, so that you and I, and that relationship with God, we sit there and we go, wait a minute, I've been more involved in materialism than I have been in seeking the person of Jesus Christ. And we begin to sit there and say, I've been seeking more this or health or friendship or a marriage more than I am of just seeking the person of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna look and we're all gonna work through there. And here's what God's gonna do. He's going to show us the depravity of our actions. We're going to become disgusted with our own adultery, spiritual adultery. And then he's going to bring us back and remind us of his unrelenting love. And he's going to build up and restore the joy of our salvation again. And we are going to begin to do the first works that we did when we were in love with him above all else. Let's pray.